0: Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking Building Your Ultimate Body with Dr. Bill Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Bill Campbell. We're going to talk about some of his research, some of his work, and this incredible jam-packed with information guidebook that he recently published. And let's get into it. We've got Bill Campbell here. Bill, how are we doing? I'm doing great. Just got out of a research
1: team meeting with my research staff. Um, So we're talking about plans for next year, reflections on what we did this semester. So that was, I always enjoyed that. It's one of the highlights of the week.
0: Good stuff. So you've got this new guidebook that I feel like is just all inclusive, covers soup to nuts, really everything you need to know and do start to finish from nutrition, behavior, mindset, nutrition itself, and the important components of that calories, calorie deficits, maintenance, everything and training. What is what was the idea behind this book and why you wanted to put this guidebook together? Well,
1: first, I'm going to ask a favor that you could send me an email with all that. And I can use that as a testimonial. <laughs> that was, that was a, better than I would have done myself. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, the guidebook was I? I did this in in co- um, collaboration with a publishing company called Clean Health Fitness Institute, and that's an Australian company. And my uh, my friend of mine, Lane Norton, has done some work for them, so he put me in contact with them. And it was basically, yeah, they they did all the video shoots, the um the the pictures, the they made they made it look pretty. And essentially, it was this was a book that I was writing. Um, all of my thoughts, everything that my philosophies about building somebody's ultimate body or their ultimate physique. And as you know, it's, I, I, take a lifestyle approach to that process. I don't, um, I love bodybuilders. I learn from them, but what they do to step on stage is not a sustainable way of living. So my guidebook takes the approach. How can you Let's get lean, but let's be lean in a way where it's sustainable, where it's a part of your lifestyle. Does that mean stage lean? Probably not for most of us, at least not for me. So that's the the uh, that's the approach I took to the guidebook, and I I like this. Um, I think the person that would benefit from it would be anybody who's a beginner, because I wrote it for a beginner. We have beginner workouts in there, and so I, I hope that a beginner could learn and go all the way up through the more advanced scientific principles but the, the if i were to say who is it tailored to the most it's tailored to a serious fitness enthusiast who would also like the evidence behind what they do so it's not just my thoughts it's all of the science that you know the the, the evidence supporting why i believe what i believe
0: uh so <laughs> i i guess i want to kind of just jump into it the at the beginning of the guidebook you kind of talk about you talk a lot about mindset, which I think is definitely important to kind of wrap your brain around the process of what you're looking to do. But you also talk about building your ultimate body, starting with your schedule. So what are the, some of the things that we need to keep in mind when it comes to setting time aside for building the ideal physique that we want to build?
1: Yeah. So when, when I was thinking through that that concept or, or that approach, I'm aware of bodybuilders and even my students. And students are busy, but what I notice is with students, and let me just say younger people in general, now that I'm middle-aged, I can, I can differentiate. <laughs> um, a lot of people, bodybuilders, younger people, they literally set their schedule with their training, and then life kind of fits in around that. And that's not reality for professionals, people with families. So I'm I'm approaching it from that standpoint and that's where I say let's identify you're going to have your job you're going to have your commitments to your family but what are the pockets that you do have or that you could make available for your training we've got to put them on the schedule so uh, scheduling is important and we have to identify those times so th- that's that's the one thing and then the other thing that I that I mentioned is I, I'm forcing people to appreciate time for meal prep, because that takes for anybody that prepares their meals. It's that is a time commitment that, and that's something that needs to be treated like training. If you're going to do serious meal preparation. Now, ideally you can do that in one day a week. I, I, I try to do all of mine um, one day per week. Cause I, I feel like it's more efficient, but that's still a three or four hour process for me. And I think, I believe that's the case for a lot of people. So that's what's what, what I did. It was. Yes, you, 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 you have your, your life that has to come first, but we have to also identify when our goals are in our schedule, we can work out where it's in the schedule and meal prep.
2: I love that you blended the two of those together. I have to be honest. I was a little surprised when I started reading through that, that that was something that you included, because I feel like a lot of professionals don't really talk about the time commitment that it takes for quote unquote normal people, (laughs) um, moms. And we have clients that are more centered around that type of um, demanding schedule. They have kids and jobs and other commitments and second jobs sometimes. So to be able to see that that was something that you placed right at the beginning so people could see that, I thought that
1: was really a a great part of the guidebooks though. Yeah. And one other thing that I didn't elaborate on in the book, but it's something that I'm doing now, is I have my four workouts resistance training workouts per week scheduled but my in my mind I just say I have to get these four done by the end of the week so monday's right. the first day sunday's the last day ideally I do monday tuesday thursday friday but if that doesn't work out for whatever reason, I can still go ahead and do it on. Saturday. I can make up one Saturday or even Sunday if I had to. I didn't touch on that approach in the book, but I do for my own life. I love that. It takes a little bit of the pressure off of um, why well, it's Friday and I have to do this. Well, maybe I don't. Maybe I have a, a, a child that, that needs me to take them to the doctor. So, hey, I hopefully I can get my hour of my resistance training workout in Saturday. So there's yet an even another approach. That's still structured. It's it's still planned, but there is a, a lot of flexibility with that. So I like that. How many workouts per week out of seven days as a kind of like a backup plan?
2: Yeah, I love that because people tend to feel really guilty if they don't hit quote unquote that Friday workout. So having that flexible mindset is important too. So yeah. Yeah, it's
1: kind of it's flexible training scheduling, really. Exactly. It's,
0: it's, yeah. Yep. On the, on I, the flip I'm side. On the flip side, you know, sometimes people are like, they don't set those. Okay. Well, these are the four days a week that I'm going to train. And then, you know, they fall off and it's all, well, I'm going to get back on next week because I missed a day in the middle of the week. So now it's like, all right, well, I have to, no matter what, by the end of this week, Sunday through Saturday, I need to get these four workouts in.
1: Yep. Now, obviously that doesn't work out so well when you have seven days that you're planning. (laughs) So (laughs) I always advise don't don't at least take one day off.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you have some r- wiggle room.
1: Yes. Yeah. And I'm just big in recovery and mm-hmm. just disengaging. But the, yeah, that's uh, sometimes bodybuilders struggle with that.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting I, because you mentioned the difference between, I guess, the mindset of a bodybuilder versus and, and I've seen this in myself because I came up as a competitive bodybuilder and it was my workouts, my nutrition And then everything else came second to that versus your everyday gym goer that is like, well, I have my life and now how do I fit fitness and nutrition into my current life instead of the opposite?
1: Yeah, it's it's exactly that's exactly right. It's you still have to prioritize it. I don't I don't want to give people a pass, but it's it's a non narcissistic way to live a a lifestyle where you can you know, get the build a body that's lean and that includes, you know, all of the intangibles, hopefully sleep, an adequate sleep, the meal prep, uh, the cardio, if, if, if somebody wants to do cardio for additional fat loss.
0: Yeah. So speaking of that and the lifestyle factors, because you do mention this in your guidebook as well, focusing on other lifestyle factors outside of just the gym and your nutrition. So what are those things and what do they look like? You mentioned sleep, you mentioned cardio. How does that recovery. look like? Yeah. yeah. How does, how does that look in a person's week?
1: Yeah. So I sleep was one of the things that I wrote about. Now you, if for anybody that's going to purchase this, or if you've read it, I don't have long sections on sleep because I'm not a sleep expert and I'm the first one to admit that. But what I do is I talk to people who are in that space and I've looked at some research. i i I'm not a sleep researcher and I've, the more I learn about sleep is if that's not good, it just has so many other negative adaptation or just negative consequences throughout your week, your training, your energy levels, anxiety, stress. So that's one of the main things. The other thing was that I was doing a little bit of research on prior to this was just having some type of aerobic activity. And I, I took the approach in this guidebook. I I like having a base of walking. You don't have to do cardio, but let's do something for cardiovascular health. And walking does actually, it's lipolytic. It causes fat loss. So I went with the approach. Everybody can walk. I I threw out a number of aim for 7,000 steps per day. So that and resistance training kind of serve as, that's just what you do. If you're going to live, if you're going to be in this world of, yeah, you know, I want to have, I want to be building my body. I want to, you know, guard against adding on body fat as I age. I think we just have to come to terms with, you need to be resistance training. And I think it's also beneficial for walking for, again, for cardiovascular health. Now, I also did talk about aerobic exercise and I didn't go heavy into that in the guidebook. I think if I ever do a volume two, I would, but it's additional, I'm going to call it additional cardio, because I'm going to count walking as cardio. It's very powerful in terms of fat loss. It's, I mean, it's as good as any supplement that you're going to do. Um, And I I did a lot of research even since the, I published the guidebook and the research was not done in bodybuilders. So I'm going to say, I'm going to reserve, I'm not going to say that this applies to bodybuilders, but a lot of people have this belief that Well, if I do cardio, I'm going to lose all this muscle. And that's simply not the case. The research does not support that. I will challenge people. Find me a study where resistance trained people added cardio and they lost muscle mass. I I don't think you're going to, you might find one or two, but the majority of the studies in that space, they just don't support that. Now, is it possible If you have a bodybuilder who's been training for 10 or 15 years, they have a lot more muscle. If they start doing cardio, would they lose muscle? Yeah, that's possible. We don't have evidence though. And we'd also have to say that they're going to be much different than everybody else. So as I've kind of, you know, gone on a deep dive of this concurrent training or adding aerobic exercise, if somebody's goal is to be in a fat loss phase, or they want to lose fat, adding cardio with a caloric deficit, um, it just makes a lot of sense. It's it's, it's it's a very fat-inducing mode of exercise.
0: You know, I also think about it just practically thinking about how things work. If you're doing cardio, you're also increasing nutrient delivery, vasodilation, things like that, which are going to be beneficial to long-term, that's going to be beneficial to your muscle and hypertrophy.
1: Yeah. And the insulin sensitivity, even with mm-hmm. just walking. So yeah, I, I agree. And stress, anxiety. And again, I did talk about if you can walk outside yeah, um, in, in nature. the sun, mm-hmm. um, just a little bit of research. Again, that, those are areas that I'm, I'm hesitant to, to go very um, down the rabbit trail because I that's not my area, but there, there is, you know, and then something else I've just been learning recently is how many people are vitamin D deficient and sunlight, addresses that. So, um, then again, you have to be careful of skin cancer. So it's not like you want to be outside eight hours a day, making sure you get enough vitamin D, but just walking. And and if you can walk in some sunlight, um, it, it it seems like just the benefits start to stack on each other helps you sleep helps with vitamin D synthesis helps with anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. Also hormones too, right? Um, I mean, definitely with insulin sensitivity for sure. Um, yeah, I, I would think it does, but I, I can't elaborate on anything in particular.
0: So from a nutrition standpoint, you kind of t- you talk about and I think this is t- a super important thing to talk about in differentiating nutrients. You talk about adaptive versus uh, fueling nutrients, and I think that's an excellent way to put it. I think that's, your guidebook is the first time I've seen it that way. Yeah, And it's an excellent way to put it for just like a base level understanding of macronutrients. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's
1: three macronutrients. There's carbohydrates, protein, and fats. And for people who are active, whether they be athletes or just fitness enthusiasts, I think it's valuable to kind of conceptualize what these macronutrients mean to you to help you optimize your, or to reach your fitness goals. And I I chose, rather than just saying, these all give me energy, well, true, but yet there's one of them that's not not very, the body does not prefer to use it for energy at all. So I use the concept, the terminology of fueling nutrients, which would be our carbs and fats. So as you are exercising, your body burns carbs and fats preferentially. Uh, That's primarily dictated by the intensity of your exercise. So if you're doing a lot of lower intensity, walking, um, just like low intensity, steady state types of exercise, fat is the primary fuel source that your body uses. If you're doing HIIT training, high intensity interval training, or just high intensity training, carbohydrates are that primary fuel source. Where protein comes in is, so those fuels, carbs and fats, help you have a great workout. If you're you're fueled enough for your workout, you're gonna have greater workouts. And then what you wanna do, your workouts provided a stimulus and the carbs and fats helped amplify that stimulus. Now what you wanna do as soon as the workout is over is you want to adapt to that stimulus. How do we do that? That's That's the role of protein. So we refer to protein as the adaptive nutrient. You can have the best workouts in the world. You can be consistent, but if you don't have enough protein, your body simply doesn't adapt. The protein literally is what the the how the cells are adapting to your workouts. So, and that's true if you're trying to build muscle or build mitochondrial density or aerobic capacity, whatever the adaptation is, protein is the is the nutrient to manifest the adaptations. So you can also approach it from that we want to have a stimulus which is the workouts and we want to adapt to that and then from a macronutrient standpoint the fueling nutrients carbs and fats help maximize the stimulus that we then want to adapt to and protein is the adaptive macronutrient so they're 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 synergistic and they all have their own place in in our nutrition system
0: and you kind of talk about the protein you could using kind of a protein anchored approach.
1: Yes. Yep. For physique. Yep. For, for, if the goal is to carry more muscle mass and be a little leaner, I believe. Yes. Uh, When, when protein anchored, what I mean is we start with protein, that's going to be, we're going to start there and we're going to build around that with the other nutrients.
0: So in the guidebook I noticed, and I don't know if you gave a different range for in a deficit versus at maintenance versus in surplus, would, are you, would you recommend, I think you just gave one range if I'm not mistaken, would you recommend a different grams per kilogram or gram per pound for if you're in a deficit versus if you're in a surplus or maintenance?
1: Yeah, so more globally, I, I, I identify three phases. You're either gonna be in a fat loss phase, a muscle building phase or a maintenance phase. So those are the, I think at any point in your life, as a fitness enthusiast, those are gonna be the the three phases you're gonna be in. And with all three, I don't change the the approach. We start with protein. And I really don't change protein much on them. Um, If you're in a maintenance phase. Now, when I say maintenance, what we all want is to gain a little bit of muscle, lose a little bit of body fat. We call it maintenance, Um, but body recomposition is what most people want. And that can happen it's not impossible. It can happen. But in terms of the protein content, I generally go with a pretty standard gram per pound. So I'm 200 pounds, try to eat. I try to eat 200 grams of protein per day. At least I do that during the week. I actually do decrease it a little bit. So a gram per pound is kind of the, the, the the top end or what I tell most people to focus on. But if you were to drop to 0.75 grams per pound, that also, the research would suggest that you're maximizing muscle protein synthesis or muscle mass gains from resistance training, even with 0.75. And I'll also just give the the more global recommendation. That is 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, up to 2.2 grams per kg. So for some people, if you can't eat a gram per pound, I say, okay, if that's too high, let's have you eat more than what you normally would. We're still not a struggle. And, and I, that's when I try to make them feel comforted. Even if you're eating 1.6 or three fourths of your weight in protein, you're still maximizing your, your muscle mass. Now, why do I recommend a little higher? I did talk about this in the guidebook, and this is the first time I've ever done this publicly. I believe there are some benefits to going above. The 1.6 or the lower end of this range. And I, I I cited the studies and I I elaborated on the research where my my interpretation comes from. And essentially, the more and more protein you eat, you get more and more benefits up to a certain point. And once you pass that point or that threshold, if you keep eating more protein the benefits keep becoming less and less and less. But it does appear that there are still additional benefits. And of course, I always have to throw this in there. None of this research is done in highly trained, resistance-trained people. So bodybuilders, we just don't have that data. So I'm always going to err on the side of a little more protein recommendation, but also working with people if that's hard. Because for a lot of people, it's hard to eat high-protein. And in that case, I just want you to do more than what you would without my counsel, but not so much that this is becoming miserable or giving you GI distress or making you feel like your life is just miserable because you're constantly eating protein. That's not the goal. The goal is to make you um, adhere and to make better decisions than you would without me.
2: You talk about um, establishing maintenance calories uh, prior to starting- you know, your plan, how would you suggest, or how do you suggest in your guidebook that someone do that?
1: Yeah, I suggest the most non-sexy way to (laughs) to calculate your maintenance calories because it's the most work, but it's also the best way because it's individualized to the person and it's going to be the most accurate. So I'll, I'll give, I'll give the way that I recommend it after I tell you how most people will do this. So most people will go to a website and it'll say, put in your height, put in your weight, put in your sex, and we will tell you how many calories you should be eating. What that does is it basically, it estimates your resting metabolic rate. And then when you tell the computer or the website, how much, how active you are, it will add in an, an additional like factor for your activity. And that's going to be close in some people, but not close in others. So it's a, it's better than nothing, but it's, again, it's not specific to you. Those are general equations. And if you've heard of the Harris Benedict equation or the Mifflin St. Gior, the Cunningham, that's how those work. Again, they're estimating your resting metabolic rate, and then they're adding in, you know, they'll add 50% to that if you're moderately active or 80% if you're really active or 20% if you're pretty sedentary. What I recommend is a two-week investment of your time and life where you, you track two things. You track your body weight every day, and you track your macros every day. And essentially what you're doing is you're seeing how many calories you typically eat every day for 14 days, and you're also monitoring your body weight during those 14 days. And if you didn't gain or lose weight over those 14 days, or if it was less than a pound, because um, we're going to have normal fluctuations, that's a good estimate of what your resting or what your maintenance calories are. And I want to add one more thing: I highly recommend taking a one-week average of your weight and of your of your total calories per day, because when you look at it, Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday, your your weight goes up, your weight goes down, but at the end of the week. It's very hard for that average to move very. So taking a weekly average eliminates all of those days where you happen to be three pounds heavier on one day out of the week, or for some reason you're three pounds lighter. All of that stuff is kind of washed away when you start taking longer weekly averages.
0: Let me ask you this in regards to a Mifflin equation. That's the one that I typically use. Mm -hmm. And if you've got somebody on the heavier side, right? Like somebody who has a significant amount of body fat, it's going to give you a number that is pretty high, like almost in some cases, like close to 3000 calories. And I'm like, there's no way that that individual, just because of their weight, right? They don't hold as much muscle mass. There's no way that they, that their maintenance is like 2,800, 3000 calories. What what are your thoughts on interpreting that information there?
1: Yeah. So the, the Mifflin St. Your, I, I want, I, I does, do. you, do you know, does that one also factor in fat free mass or lean body mass? I, I no, can't Well, so it, ju- no, it I just,
0: think- it just factors in height, weight, age, and activity level activity okay. and male or female gender. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that that's where I would have an appreciation for your wisdom as a fitness professional to say, you've done this, you've worked with people. I would, I would, I would, you know, you would have your own adjustment based on your expertise. And I think that's perfectly fine. That's why we pay fitness professionals for that expertise. But one thing I love about people who at least are willing to get data, let's say you use the Mifflin St. Jor equation, you're going to know pretty quickly whether it was too much or too little, if they're getting data on themselves, they'll start gaining body fat in one or two or three weeks. And then you, you would, you're ultimately, you're going to make adjustments anyway. So I'm just asking for the time commitment on the front end for, again, I want two weeks. And I know it's a hard sell. I, sometimes I help my wife and I can't even convince my wife to give me two weeks of that <laughs> kind of data. She wants to jump right in. <laughs> so I get it. But, so uh, in summary, it's going to take care of itself, even if it's wrong, if, if you're getting data. And two, that's where you have the value. You, 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 you kind of know through your expertise, hey, we're going to make this adjustment.
2: I like using both approaches to kind of give the clients an estimation of what an equation will look like and then what their day-to-day intake is like, and then show them the difference between the two and then how we can either meet in the middle, whatever the adjustments they need to make versus what the equation gives. And it's a really great learning experience for them because it gives them the opportunity to see, uh, to Darone's point, on the high end- and then I can explain what that would look like from a lifestyle standpoint, nutrition, workouts, and what they may need to do to get to that point and kind of progress, give them, you know, a, a goal for progression, if that's something we're going to work towards and then a starting point. And I love the 14 day. I usually have people zero out things like my fitness pal or whatever type of app and have them just journal for the week and see what their baseline is before we start adding, subtracting. And I think that really builds a great trust. Mm-hmm. with the client too, because we're not just feeding them up or taking away calories. We're really just starting a baseline approach to where they are. And then they don't feel like they have to reinvent the wheel and change everything in their food plan. We can really start picking apart just the things that might need to be fine-tuned.
1: Yes, yep. Yeah, and it sounds like you're you you're, you're kind of like me. You'd like data. Um, and again, you, you don't.
2: Yeah.
1: And that's another thing in my guidebook. I don't want 29 points of data. What are the minimal things we need But man, they're so if you can just get a few points, um, body weight, protein, calories, you can do so much with that. It's so valuable. Um, And the other thing I like about the data is especially with like tracking macros or flexible dieting, you're never going to get a better education on food. And that stays with you the rest of your life. If you track your macros for six months, that's a life that is a lifetime education because I don't think you forget what butter is. But if you've never <laughs> tracked your macros, you, you don't, you don't, you have no idea. Is it, well, is butter fat? Is it carbs? Like you, you just don't know.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. And I use that to go back and have them look through and say, okay, we did this. And this was the response we got. We did this and this is the response we got. Okay, now let's figure out what the next step is. And I love being able to work with clients as like a team approach. So they feel like they're not only learning from me, but they're also being empowered to do this for a lifestyle once they don't need me anymore.
1: Yeah. And I, something I also, and I a hundred percent agree with that and I don't coach people, but I, it's always intrigued me. I mean, I have in the past, so I, I am speaking from that experience, but if something, if the client's working, if we're doing this as a team and let's say something doesn't work, it's not just me now. Like I'm, I didn't fail them. No, we, we discussed, we, we mapped out some options. I think that's what I do. I'll give you options. Which one do you think you can adhere to the most? Which one do you think excites you the most? And if it didn't work for whatever reason, well, they're not going to look at me as, as well, you gave me a bad plan. No, we just learned together that this didn't work for you. Now we, I'm going to give you some more options of what I think might work. And we do this again. I think it takes a lot of pressure off the coach when you do have this team based approach. And I've never met a client who, thinks less of me or less of a coach when they take that approach.
2: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I know I talk about fun a lot when it comes to fitness and nutrition, and I do find it to be a lot more fun to have a team approach and feel like we're in this together and it's supportive versus me just telling people what to do, because I also don't like to do that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I like to have an open dialogue. I feel like that's a great way to allow them to experience you know, it in a good way.
0: Yes. You know. The other piece that I'll mention is data, regardless of what the data tells you, whether it's what the person, the user of that data or the client wants or not, it's still useful data. Right. So if you're up a few pounds, it still gives us a lesson as to, OK, well, where do we need to go from here based on the current data that we have? So regardless of which direction that data is going in, it's still data and it's useful. Yep. So I wanted to ask you a question and this was a question that I I kind of had on my mind from a previous conversation with another coach that had a different strategy than me on the, uh, the client that comes in, right? So you have a client kind of mid-level average body fat level, and they come in and they've got two goals. They want to increase muscle and they want to decrease body fat. Which do you think in your opinion, would be the one to tackle first. Do we want to increase muscle first, or we do? Do we want to decrease body fat initially? Well, one, I would still advocate
1: for the a, a
0: two week maintenance period,
1: so that way I know what I'm what I'm working on. That way I can make an informed decision on muscle gain or fat loss. I'm going to have an appreciation for the business of coaching, and gravitate towards fat loss initially because of. Again, I, most of, most of the people that, that, that I've worked with, that tends to be, they want, even if they tell me, Hey, I'd, I want to get bigger muscles. Well, we know if you lose body fat, guess what? It looks like you've done. Even if you haven't done it, you ha- look like you have bigger muscles. If you want to, if you want to look like you've gained 10 pounds, lose fat, lose body fat. So that that's where I would hedge um, under that, you know, those are my only two choices fine tune what I believe are maintenance calories. And if they want to gain muscle and lose fat, I'm going to do with the fat loss first, with the knowledge that you're going to, it's going to give the appearance of bigger muscles, even if you didn't gain any actual muscle mass.
2: Yeah. And motivation, I think is a big piece to that too, out the gate. You know, if they feel like they're seeing great change, then being able to go back to maintenance or surplus for or build is an easier stepping stone because they've seen success right out the gate.
0: Where did diet breaks and refeeds fall into the program? So
1: I, I like i like them being a part of just the lifestyle plan. So in my life, if I'm dieting, I diet Monday through Friday and I increase my calories. and I call that a diet refeed on the weekends. That's how I naturally eat. My family likes to get pizza on Sundays. Sometimes we go out to eat Saturdays. So it fits my lifestyle. And it just so happens it also follows the research. Everybody research when there's research done in this area. Everybody eats more calories on the weekends. So why not structure your lifestyle diet in a way that mimics what you would normally do? So there's my first answer to that. So where does it fit in? It's part of the normal plan when in a fat loss phase. We just will increase the calories on the weekend gives you a break. And I think we talked last time I did research in a diet refit and the results were actually significantly better in terms of maintaining your, 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 uh, muscle mass levels in a diet. So we have some evidence that it is actually superior in terms of a diet break. What the the way that I approach that with clients is we agree at the outset, Hey, if you are starting to have a plateau, let's have it as our primary option to stop dieting at that point, but now we have to decide together kind of like, kind of like Nicole's uh, team approach. Do you want to, is it after two weeks? Is it after three weeks at, at what point in your plateau will we want to take a break from dieting because it could be that your body has adjusted enough that it's just, we're going to have to fight harder and harder and harder to get less and less of a body fat outcome and we don't want to do that. We don't want to keep fighting the body. So that's what I do. I, I, we have it. So it's planned ahead of time. So they don't feel like I'm grasping at straws. It's like, Nope. Remember when we started this, you know, we were going to do this, you know, 12 week, um, reduced calorie diet. And when we had two consecutive weeks of not losing any body weight or body fat, We're gonna do this for one week or two weeks, whatever it is. So that that is my general approach. Those would be the the options that I put on the table to my clients if I had clients, and let them you know give me feedback. Again, to me, it's all about what can they do, what can they follow. So I provide options. They tell me what they can follow the easiest, and then we both win.
0: So switching gears a little bit here, I want to talk a little bit about the training side of things that you uh, also published in this guidebook. Yeah. The Frequency, you kind of already mentioned, I, I believe like four days a week of training. Well, I, I, even that um,
1: is, is schedule dependent. Uh, if somebody tells me I'm going to lift twice a week or six days per week, I'll, we'll make that work. Um, I think I, ideally, yes, yeah, somewhere between three to four works for most people. If I'm doing three days per week, I would gravitate towards a whole body all three days or a two-week cycle where it's two, two days of upper body, one day of lower body, then the next week reverse that two days of lower body, one day of upper body. Um, when I do four days and again, I guess, let, let me step back. This, this whole approach is based on a body part philosophy or a body part perspective. If you're trying to build your body, you, you, you I believe you do that through, well, do I want bigger shoulders? Do I want uh, bigger quads? So I think it makes sense to have a body part um, perspective on your training program. If I were a power lifter, that, that that makes no sense. I would have it on movements or exercises, squat, bench press, deadlift. If I'm an athlete, again, I would be focusing on movement patterns of, you know, that mimic the sport. But for people who are trying to change their body shapes, body part perspective, and then within that context, the number of days per week, we're going to identify based on your schedule, what do you have available? And now once we know that, let's go ahead and kind of reverse engineer the best way to fill in your one or up to six days per week of resistance training. And then once we have the days and the body parts, then we can start looking at um, increases in volume, the the load, like how much weight should we lift? And then the intensity or the effort. So then we can start talking about those things.
0: So you mentioned that, right? You talk about the LEAF principle, which is load, effort, amount, and frequency.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: I want to dive into that. And I also wanted to dive into something else, but I'll let you kind of elaborate on the LEAF principle first, and then we'll go on from there.
1: So effort is, uh, well, load is how much weight should should you lift with heavy weights or light weights? So, and that's pretty consistent. The effort is the, and most people would refer to that as intensity, but I wanted to come up with an acronym that people could remember. So L-I-A-F didn't make sense, but LEAF. So effort is the same thing as intensity. Amount is volume. Everybody calls that volume. Again, I I, I wanted the word LEAF (laughs) because it was easy for me to remember. And then frequency is frequency. How many days per week? And the nice thing is, let me just start with days per week. Days per week really doesn't matter much as long as you have your volume controlled for. Now, the one caveat to that is we know that it's not ideal to train a body part only one day per week. So outside of that, four's not better than two, Two's not better than three, Five's not better than four the frequency doesn't matter as long as your total volume is controlled for. So you don't have to give too much thought to frequency um, other than just making sure if if you're doing 20 sets of chest one day per week, you would be much better off to split that over two or three days. That's the only thing that the research is clear about. And it's not even clear. I'm basing that on two studies, but both studies say the same thing. Don't throw all of your load or all of your volume into one day, spread that out. The other thing is, uh, let's go back to load. Heavy weights, moderate weights, light weights. And again, our perspective here is hypertrophy. If we're trying to build the biggest muscles, the load does not really matter. As long as, and this is where all of this is synergistic, as long as your effort is controlled for, and by that I mean intensity, So as long as you're training to near failure on every set, and what does that mean? That means I could maybe do one or two, maybe three more repetitions at the end of each set. If I stop my set somewhere around one or two reps short of failure, you are maximizing the muscle protein synthetic response of that set. So whether that's whether you're doing 15 reps or five reps, doesn't matter as long as those sets are taken close to failure so what I like about that is once again we can adopt a flexible approach if people like to lift with heavy weights lift with heavy weights if you some people like to lift with very light weights lift with light weights now there is a there is that's within reason once you start getting above 30 repetitions you still gain muscle mass but now you're not gaining as much muscle mass as you would if you're training with a in a lower rep range, like 30 or less. So there, is, there are limits to this. Now, it just so happens that eight to 12 reps or six to 12 reps, I think makes sense to put your programming in that rep range most of the time. And the reason I say that is there's really, um, right now scientists think that there's two main components that, that explain the mechanism of hypertrophy. Those two mechanisms are metabolic stress and mechanical tension. So you maximize mechanical tension with heavy weights. If you're lifting really heavy weights, only one or two reps, you're getting, you're maximizing this tension on those, on those muscle fibers. The other aspect of this is the metabolic stress, where if you're doing really light weights, you get this lactic acid buildup. You're getting hydrogen ion buildup. You're you're flooding the muscle with blood. So this is what we would refer as metabolic stress. Well, that's maximized when you get when you do very light weights. So what's if you look at this moderate rep range, you're actually being the most efficient with each set. You're taking some of the best components of mechanical tension and some of the best components from metabolic stress. So while eight to twelve or six to twelve reps isn't fundamentally better than heavier weights or lighter weights. It, it is a way that's the most efficient. So I suggest 60, maybe 70% of your rep ranges should be in the six to 12 rep range. Not because it's in, not because it's, you know, happens to be physiologically superior. It just makes sense. You're getting the best of both worlds.
0: I guess you kind of already Was- answered that that second part where it was going to be ahead. about frequency, right? Because if you're do, I came from, I guess, before this research came out, I came from the old school bodybuilding where you do chest one day back another day, legs another day, shoulders, and then you did an arm day and maybe you added in some other lagging body part or maybe you trained a lagging body part multiple times throughout the week, like at least twice a week because you wanted to bring that up. But the more current research seems to support Like, hey, if I did maybe legs twice a week and then upper push-pull twice a week, that would be more beneficial than if I were just to target higher volume, let's say anywhere between 15 and 20 total working sets, because that'll just delay recovery.
1: Well, yeah, potentially on recovery. And if you think, let's say I'm doing chest and I'm going to do 20 sets per week, and let's just say I have two options. I'm either gonna do, well, let's act, let's 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 say it's 15 sets per week. And I'm gonna have three options. I'm gonna do all 15 sets on one day, or I'm gonna do eight and seven over two days, or I'm gonna do five, five, and five over three days. If you only do one day per week on chest, all 15 sets, you're gonna get a given increase in muscle protein synthesis. And let's, we're going to assume that this increase in muscle protein synthesis does lead to increases in muscle mass. And typically it does. uh, But again, it's, there doesn't always have to mean that, but generally muscle protein synthesis, you can predict if you increase that with each workout, you will gain muscle over time. That's you're only increasing muscle protein synthesis one day out of seven for that muscle group. Whereas if you took some of the other approaches, you're getting these bumps in muscle protein synthesis two days per week or three days per week. So that's, I I put more of the emphasis on that, that aspect. We want a stimulus for growth more frequently. Now, again, I say that four doesn't seem to be better than two, as long as we're only talking 15 sets. But we do have limited research. I'm thinking of one, possibly two studies that have shown one day per week does not maximize muscle mass when all like the, you know, what we would call the bro split where it's all in one workout. Let's just talk about it. Let's just talk about muscle protein synthesis as units. If 15 sets increase muscle protein synthesis, a hundred units and doing five sets per week or five sets per workout three times, let's say each of them increased it by 30 units each time. Well, now that's 90 units. I'd be better off doing 100. But, but I think the reality is once you get past a certain number of sets within a workout, you don't keep increasing the muscle protein synthetic response. So there's a, it's, it's another law of diminishing returns. Get in there, hit that body part, whether it's chest, biceps, whatever. But at some point, doing more and more sets isn't continually giving you a greater and greater increase in muscle protein synthesis. So that's why I think, yes, get, maximize it. And we do know that taking each set to near failure does that. Um, and some, some researchers would say four sets is about the, the threshold um, per body part. Some would say more than that. So that's, those are my thoughts in the literature that I'm relying on to say, let's not do the bro split that we all, all used to do. Let's spread it out, but we can feel pretty good about spreading it out based on your schedule, because I think pretty much anything from two to six, as long as we're always doing 15 sets per week, and again, on a weekly basis, we should expect the same amount of muscle hypertrophy over time.
2: I was going to jump into the rapid fat loss um, study. Oh, Do you want to yeah. go there? Can we can we talk a little bit about your recent findings that you published? Yes. Yeah. I found this yeah. really interesting.
1: Yeah. And we we just finished that study, I think, last spring. And we didn't publish it yet, but we had presented that data at, um, at a conference and my general philosophy. And I talk about this in the guidebook is I have three principles for fat loss. One, the very first principle is don't lose weight fast. Like don't go on a crash diet. I'm not in favor of that. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to design a study that challenged that approach. Well, is that really, and again, I, I know there's other research that says don't do this, but what we did to challenge my thought on this was we said, let's do, a, let's, let's do something that I don't think is the best decision for fat loss, but let's throw in everything that we know of that will help protect muscle mass during this, uh, during this, you know, let's call it an aggressive caloric deficit. So that's the problem with aggressive or severe deficits. Yes, you lose fat, but you, you just cause your body to respond by losing muscle mass, slowing down metabolism. So we basically did three things in our rapid fat loss study. We said, we're going to have high protein, which we are. That's also one of my principles. Always have high protein when dieting. So we told our subjects, eat, eat one gram of protein per pound of body weight as you reduce your calories by just under 40%. And typically my research is a 25% caloric um, restriction. The other thing that we did was we said, of course, we're gonna have our subjects resistance trained, and these were resistance trained subjects, so they were already doing that. So when you're in a caloric deficit, we wanna maximize fat loss, we wanna maintain muscle mass. The way that we maintain muscle mass is to keep throwing the body um, these anabolic stimuli. So what what is anabolic to the body? Well, the two things I just mentioned, protein is anabolic, protein builds muscle, protein increases muscle protein synthesis. Resistance training is anabolic. So that mode of exercise plus high protein are the two things we know can help prevent the loss of muscle mass, possibly even in a pretty aggressive caloric deficit. The third thing that we did was we said, we're only doing this for two weeks. I, I firmly believe a... Twelve week or three month um, aggressive caloric deficit. It doesn't matter what you do, if the if the length of the diet is too long, you're going to lose muscle mass. Now that doesn't mean it's gone forever. You get it back relatively quickly, and a few weeks after the diet. So I don't want to, I don't want to you know throw out false alarms. But that's still time that you didn't gain any new muscle. So anytime you lose it, you've taken the time to lose it. Then you've taken the time to get it back. And that's just simply time that you're not building new muscle. So I don't want to minimize it either. I fully expected this two-week study of reducing calories by just under 40% to cause pretty significant fat loss, but also a pretty big drop in fat-free mass or muscle mass. And what we found was, I'm going to give two versions of our of the research or two versions of the story. The first version was our subjects lost about three pounds over the two week period, uh, one per, a little over one, uh, 1% body fat. And the initial outlook was they lost two thirds of their weight, so about two pounds from fat and one pound from fat-free mass or muscle stores. And that's not great. Could have been worse with that aggressive of a diet, but typically the threshold is, what, what I educate my students is when when somebody loses weight, You basically have a 75, you want 75% of the weight to come from fat and 25% from lean body mass stores. That's your, if you're better than, if if you're losing more fat than 75%, that's good. If you're losing a little less than that and, and a little more lean body mass, that's not good. So that's kind of like our measuring stick. So we kind of were a little bit below what we would have liked for these people, for our subjects, but then we did something else. We also measured total body water. And when we factored that, what we realized is that they lost what we said was a pound of lean body mass was not really a pound of lean body mass. Almost all of that was water weight. So the reality is what we now are going to call dry fat free mass because we're accounting for the water. Our subjects lost almost no fat dry fat free mass they essentially maintained nearly all of their muscle mass and in fact 2 weeks after the study after this aggressive part was over they had actually gained a little bit of dry fat free mass compared to baseline so there was absolutely after a month there was no harm done in terms of fat free mass muscle mass we'll just call it muscle mass there was actually a slight increase over the month and they main, and they kept the body fat off the entire time so our results challenged my thinking i'm 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 still not still not going to go out and tell people yeah cut your calories by 40 percent. but if you do make sure you have high protein make sure you're resistance trained and i'm going to now say if you do this under a very short window the damage may not be that it, it I, our data would suggest and again these were resistance trained people I, I would suggest now that I'm not as negative or am worried about the losses of muscle mass that I was prior to our study.
0: So what if this study were to be a longer duration? Do you think there would be a greater effect on loss of muscle mass? I, I believe so. Yes. I I The body's going to have, again, these were already lean
1: people in this study. They don't have a lot of fat to lose. So that would be my estimate, but I guess I'm kind of begging for let's do a four-week, forty percent uh, restriction in this population. But I, I, I mean, it was not easy. It was, it was two weeks. Was that was my
2: next. Why. That was my next question: was how did they feel? Which I know is kind of a an iffy question, but, but yeah, the two weeks. And- <laughs> something that they were excited to do? Were they grumpy? Were they hangry? Like what was
1: yeah. some of well, that I'm going to say i like a jerk, but I don't care how they felt.
2: <laughs> I know. Well, that's why I said it's a little wonky of a question, because yeah. I know well, that's not your your well, goal. Here's, but here's
0: the thing, too. Like we have to look at research like <laughs> we have to look at research like that and then think, OK, well, who are we applying it to? Because if we're pl- applying right. it to the general population, are you then going to go and be in a more aggressive calorie deficit for a two week period and then binge for two weeks after that.
1: Right. Right. Yes. Um, We did do, and I have not analyzed this data yet, but we did do um, a hunger questionnaire. Now it wasn't a mood state, so I don't have that. But if I'm remembering correctly, it was like, how motivated are you to diet this week? How full have you felt this past week? And I just haven't analyzed that data yet. Um, but I will tell you anecdotally, I don't think anybody would have been excited or maybe even would have volunteered for a third week. I mean, there would have been some, but there, it was, it was, um, not easy for a lot of the subjects. And again, these weren't bodybuilders. They weren't, I feel like with bodybuilding, that's a sk- You almost get skilled at dieting Yeah. Um, where you just get used to it. Uh, these subjects were not there. Now they were lean. These were the leanest subjects I've ever had in a study. But not quite bodybuilder.
0: Yeah, I mean bodybuilding—it's just a mindset thing, mind over matter at that point. And it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to plow through this until I get to the show date, and then after the show date, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What do you have? Do you have anything else in the pipeline that you can talk about? Yeah, we just finished data collection about two weeks ago
1: on a um, what I'm calling a protein tracking study. So I'll, I'll I'll set the stage, and I think you guys will love this as as coaches. So a few years ago, we compared a very our a high protein diet versus a low protein diet in resistant trained females, and what we found was probably not surprising to anybody. But the high protein diet significantly increased muscle mass in the um, resistant or the yeah the resistance trained females. And surprisingly to me, they also lost a significant amount of body fat, even though they increased their calories. And again, all of that increase came from protein. Um, and that difference, they lost body fat compared to baseline. So now a couple of years later, I said, okay, so we have data in trained females. What about females that are just starting training? They're new, they're novice. So for us, it would be like if you're getting a new client. And what we did was we had three groups. We had a control group in this study who were, they were told, don't change anything about your diet. Just show up to my lab and we're going to watch you lift weights. And this was a three day per week study of lifting And you're just going to do resistance training for three weeks. The other, and by the way, we don't, we have not analyzed. I have no idea what the outcome is yet. The other two groups were our high protein groups. The high protein group, we had a tracking group. So we trained these girls how to track track their macros. And we also gave them a protein goal. We said during the eight weeks, you're going to work out in my lab three days per week, doing the same workout as the control group. But you're also going to have to, Track your macros and get one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which, you know, if you're working with novice people, that's a very big ask. That's a ton of protein for that population. But we worked with them. We gave them all kinds of uh, protein. And I want to thank Dimatize, I want to thank Legion Athletics. I want to thank Muscle Feast and isopure all of those companies um, donated protein to the study that and the, the subjects we got enough protein they could take home so we had one group track and then we had this what i'm what i'm choosing to call our intuitive protein group where we said we want you to double the amount of protein you normally eat but we don't want you to track anything because if i think about having a new female client One, she's going to start resistance training. So that's a huge new behavior to adopt. I might also ask, okay, also, let's have you eat more protein. Well, now that's two things that might not be easy. And then if I say, hey, also, start tracking this. Do I really want to have a new client track, start a new exercise program, and increase protein? Well, I don't know, but we're going to find out. So this third group, we said, we just want you to increase your protein. If you normally have two eggs for breakfast, eat four. If you normally have a chicken salad, double the chicken in the salad. So we basically said, we helped them identify their naturally high protein meals. And we said, you're going to double the protein in these meals. So they didn't track anything, which I think would be a great approach for a new client. Don't track anything yet. We'll bring that skill set in later if we need to. So that's what we're looking at. Um, So in, in summary, we're asking two questions if you're a new trainer, does it, does it matter to increase your protein? We know it matters if you're resistance trained, but what about for new people? Maybe for somebody new, just the act of lifting weights has, has this benefit above and beyond what protein would do. And even let's just assume that yes, protein is important or protein does build more muscle mass or even cause more fat loss. Do you have to track it? Do you have to have this high goal or can you just kind of intuitively increase it again we also gave them protein supplements so i'm excited about that because i think it will have a big impact on those of us that work with new clients that are are coaches in that space
2: i think i have a one of every client that you just described in all three in my current caseload so this will be epic to yes yeah compare, compared to yeah
1: yeah and if if I mean, I'm, I'm a protein guy. I like protein. I, but if I don't need to tell a client to eat protein, that's great news because again, I I don't have many, I don't perceive or many of my former clients, they're not begging for protein. Like that's, that's a a challenge. I have to work at it. If I don't have protein supplements and protein bars, I really struggle. I don't, to get a gram per pound.
2: Yeah. And I like the, the, the third client in terms of the habit stack because that's pretty much what we do in coaching is start one thing at a time and then start layering so it'd be really interesting to see each of the three subjects that's pretty amazing
0: yes yeah yeah i figured you guys would appreciate it it's always great stuff out of your lab so yes thank you it (laughs) is and it it helps drive it helps us it helps the coaching profession a lot tremendously so i i mean I think that's all we have for you. Where do we find your just for our audience your guidebook?
1: So yeah, thank you for asking. If you go to my Instagram page, it's Bill Campbell PhD. It's the link in my bio, and it'll take you right to the sales page.
0: Awesome. We really awesome. appreciate you coming on once again. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, share this with a friend, write a review, and you'll hear us next week.